You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. We'll be in chapters 34 and 35 this week, and we're continuing with uh, just this conversation that Elihu has now with Job and his three friends. And so last week we, we saw Elihu for the first time. He had patiently waited his turn to speak to both Job and Job's three friends, and, and we didn't know, uh, you know, but apparently he's been hanging around the whole time, listening to all these speeches by these friends, and he just, all of a sudden the narrator or the book itself just tells us he's there and he wants to speak. Um, so he, had, he hadn't liked what he had heard, and he wanted to chime in, and he wanted to chime in with what he believed was real wisdom, and he wanted these guys to listen to him. And what we saw last week in his first speech it, it was different, right? It looked to be different than what you had heard from the three friends for so many chapters. And uh, while he was frustrated, it did appear like he had genuine concern for all four of these men. And he spoke out of humility. Uh, and he called on Job specifically to recognize that God always acts with a purpose. And his main purpose is to save men. And so this week we're going to look at a second and a third speech. That's one way you can look at it. I mean, he's speaking this whole time, so I guess you consider it one speech. But the second and third uh, time that he, he opens his mouth after a brief break. And what he's going to do tonight is he's going to emphasize God's justice while condemning some of Job's actions and motives. And uh, some of what he says is questionable, but for better or worse, I think what we see is a is slightly different Elihu than we saw last week. Um, but regardless of his flaws, regardless of, of maybe where he, he's wrong or misspeaks, he points us to some truths about God that I think should have some bearing on the way that we react and respond uh, when we're in difficult situations. So we'll start with chapter 34. And it says, Then Elihu continued saying, so this is his second speech, Hear my words, you wise ones, and listen to me, you knowledgeable ones. Doesn't the ear test words and the palate taste food? Let us judge for ourselves what is right. Let us decide together what is good. For Job has declared, I am righteous, yet God has deprived me of justice. Would I lie about my case? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job? He drinks derision like water. He keeps company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, a man gains nothing when he becomes God's friend. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. It's impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly. For he repays a person according to his deeds, and he gives him what his conduct deserves. Indeed, it is true that God does not act wickedly, and the Almighty does not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth? Who put him in charge of the entire world? If he put his mind to it and withdrew the spirit and breath he gave, every living thing would perish together, and mankind would return to the dust." If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I have to say. Could one who hates justice govern the world? Will you condemn the mighty righteous one who says to a king, worthless man, and to nobles, wicked men? God is not partial to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. They die suddenly in the middle of the night. People shudder, then pass away. Even the mighty are removed without effort. For his eyes watch over a man's ways, and he observes all his steps. There is no darkness, no deep darkness, where evildoers can hide. God does not need to examine a person further that one should approach him in court. He shatters the mighty without an investigation and sets others in their place. 
Therefore he recognizes their deeds and overthrows them by night, and they're crushed. In full view of the public, he strikes them from their, for their wickedness because they turned aside from following him and did not understand any of his ways, but caused the poor to cry out to him, and he heard the outcry of the needy. But when God is silent, who can declare him guilty? When he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he watches over both individuals and nations so that godless men should not rule or ensnare the people. Suppose someone says to God, I've endured my punishment. I will no longer act wickedly. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I won't do it again. Should God repay you on your terms when you've rejected his? You must choose, not I. So declare what you know. Reasonable men will say to me, along with the wise men who hear me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. If only Job were tested to the limit because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He scornfully claps in our presence while multiplying his words against God. So if you remember from last week, Elihu begins speaking by declaring that he's got upright and pure motives. Right? He wanted to talk about how pure he was and, and he didn't have ulterior motives. He's a frustrated man. He was frustrated because he felt as though Job's friends had, had judged Job improperly and didn't provide him with any real answers. He was also mad with Job because he felt like Job's position and Job's argument, whether it was intentional or not, it put God in a bad light. It portrayed him in a, in a wrong way. But even so, Elihu met the cultural standard. We talked about that last week. He waited his turn. He was the youngest there. So he didn't, he didn't just speak when he felt like speaking. He waited his turn. And he, and he spoke from a position of great humility. He told Job even, listen, I'm made of clay just like you're made of clay. I'm no better than you. I'm not here to lord myself over you. I'm here to give you true wisdom and true advice and true answers. And he also stated, listen, I'm not here to flatter you. He even said, I don't know how to flatter, even if I wanted to. I don't know how. That's not my intention here. I only want to speak the truth as I'm guided by the Holy Spirit. And so for the most part, that's what we got from Elihu in his first speech. And again, it was this stark contrast between what we saw as other things three friends, how they dealt with Job. But now we get to this second speech, and it's almost as if, study on your own, maybe I'm off base, but it's almost like he's gotten worked up, right? And now we see this different side of him. And I, I even wrote here in my notes, I want to provide a disclaimer here, because this is tough. It's tough to understand what's really going on. It's, it's tough to discern at times what Elihu is really trying to say and the position that he's really trying to come from. Because it's interesting, if you do a deep dive and do some homework on your own, you can look at commentaries where people have in, interpreted the words of Elihu completely different. Some people put Elihu as like the wisest guy in the room, and some people bash him. So it's really difficult to discern what he's saying. But as I was thinking about that, three things really stood out to me. Three things that we need to take notice of. The first is what I just told you. Study the scripture for yourself. Pray over it and ask God to clarify it for you. Right? You have the personal responsibility to study the scripture on your own. The second thing is, I was thinking about myself. <laughs> I was being selfish. But pray for your leadership. Right? You have the responsibility to adhere to 2 Timothy 2.15, which is just study the, study the word to show yourself approved. Right? You have the responsibility. While the leadership bears the weight of James 3.1, which basically says, hey, buddy, you better think about before you become a teacher because you're going to be judged more harshly, right? So pray for your own clarity, but also the clarity of those who present the word week in and week out. 
And then three is just this idea that our words matter. What we say matters. And so our aim should be twofold. First thing, as believers, we should strive to adhere to the Scriptures in all that we say and do and teach. And the second thing is, we should strive to be as clear as possible. Because our words can be interpreted by different individuals in different ways. So we have to recognize clarity as our friend. We don't want things to be any more muddy or cloudier than they need to be. We want to be straight to the point, and we want people to understand the message that we're trying to get across. And so I was just thinking about that as I looked at these words of Elihu and was like, what the heck is this guy trying to say? But I think we see a different side of him here. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time for that to happen. This is what I was talking to Charlie about in the dugout. But if you look at chapter 34, he begins by referencing Job and his three friends. He says, hear my words, you wise ones. And listen to me, you knowledgeable ones. To me, that's very interesting. Because if you remember last week, he kind of got onto these guys and said, You're not wise. I, he, says, he basically says, I bit my tongue and I didn't say anything because I was going to let wisdom speak. It was his way of saying, I'm the young guy in the room. You're the old guy in the room. You're supposed to have the wisdom. I wanted to hear it. But the longer you spoke, the more I realize, there's no wisdom coming out of this guy's mouth. So just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise. Only true wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the conclusion that he came to. So it seems interesting to me that now he's calling these guys wise. He's calling, calling these guys knowledgeable. And, and why is that happening? Like, what's the purpose of that? And so as I wrestled with that, I came to the conclusion Maybe you can come to a different one, but I was like, there's two options here. One of two things is going on. Maybe a third. But the first is sarcasm. Maybe he's just being sarcastic. Maybe this is a slight dig at these guys because he just told them they weren't wise, and now he's calling them wise guys. Maybe he was literally calling them wise guys, right? The second thing is possible. Maybe he's trying to flatter them. He just told them he wasn't, and then he didn't know how. But maybe that's what we're getting from him right here. Maybe he's trying to butter him up. I don't know. The, possibly the third thing could be maybe he's just referencing you're the older one in the room. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to interpret that. If we're honest, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I think it's important to note that there's been, it seems to be that there's been a slight shift in the approach of Elihu, right? He, he doesn't appear to be coming from quite the position of humility that he came from last week. And at the very least, that's interesting to me. But to his credit, he still charges these men he, with determining, is what I'm saying right or wrong? He still proposes the question to them, listen, you're the one that needs to listen to me, and then you need to decide for yourself, is what I'm saying right or wrong? He's not demanding that what I'm saying is right. He's saying, I want you to listen to what I have to say, and I want you to determine if it's right or wrong. But what, what's really different here is the fact that Elihu accuses Job of two faults. And now he seems to be taking a position that's very similar to one that Job's friends took. He says that, that Job has argued that God has given him no justice. So in a sense, he's questioned the justice of God. At least that's how Elihu sees it. And that's what really ticks Elihu off. 
Job has a right in his mind. He's got a right that God hasn't given him. And in, in a way, this is directly connected to, to Elihu's reason for anger in the first speech, right? On a simplified level, Job's argument could be broken down to, I'm right and God's wrong. And Elihu's taking offense to that. But Elihu also lumps Job in with the wicked. This is where there's a comparison, I think, between Elihu and now Job's three friends, what we saw from them earlier. I think there's a strong argument to be made that Elihu doesn't go as far as Job's friend by declaring that he is wicked. See, that's what the three friends said. They said, you're wicked. Just go ahead and confess, because we already know you're wicked. I don't think that's what Elihu's doing here. But what he is telling Job is, you're at least acting like the wicked. You're not, you're not wicked yourself, but you're acting like the wicked. It's almost like he's saying, shouldn't there be something different about you but I'm not seeing it because you're acting just like the wicked would act. Even greater, Elihu accuses Job of declaring that there's no gain or benefit to worshiping God. That's the implication in verse 9. For he has said, that's Elihu, and he's, the he is Job. For Job has said, a man gains nothing when he becomes God's friend. The problem with that accusation is that there's, there's not any evidence for it. I mean, where has Job said that? The, the greatest or the closest supporting argument for that, if you go all the way back to Job 21.15, Job says, Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him, and what will we gain by pleading with Him? Now, if we read that verse alone, it sure looks like Elihu's got him. I pinned it on him. He's looking for something, some benefit from God. But, but what did Job say that for? Well, he was referencing, right there in chapter 21, Job was referencing the thought process of the wicked. That's not what he thought. He's saying that's what the wicked thought. It's almost like watching the news today and how you say something, they spin it, right, and make it look like you said it. That's what's going on with Elihu there. Job is a righteous man, and it appears to me that Elihu is either stretching it a bit or doubling down on this comparison between Job and the wicked. Regardless, it seems like he's gone too far. Elihu's gone a little too far in his accusation of Job, just like Job's three friends have. Now, I told you that all of this was confusing. <laughs> it's a little confusing. But even if we, muddy, we wade through all that muddiness, right? Elihu does point us to the truth about God's justice. He may be wrong about Job, but he points us to the truth about God's justice. He declares three things. The first is in verses 10 through 15, and this is this idea that God must be just. It's what he tells Job. God has to be just. But he's interpreted the words of Job as an accusation that God's the one that's done the wrong. But he makes it clear that God is completely just. He states twice in verse 10 and verse 12, God doesn't act in a wicked manner. So while Job claims that he hasn't received justice, Elihu states God's not going to pervert justice. Right? And it's interesting to note, I think both men can be correct at the same time on the same point. Because just because Job hasn't received justice, he hasn't handed down a verdict. But at the same time, God hasn't perverted justice. If he just hasn't spoken, he hasn't perverted justice. 
So both men can be right at the same time. But Elihu's support for his argument that God has to be just comes from verses 13 and through 15. He says, Who gave him, God, who gave God authority over the earth? Who put him in charge of the entire world? If he puts his mind to it and withdrew the spirit and the breath he gave, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. He's saying, who gave God charge over the earth? Who put him in control? That's a rhetorical question, right? But the answer is no, nobody did. God's always been in control. There's no one over God. And as such, he has to be just. Because if, it's, if he's not, who's going to rein him in? Elihu says, if, if God really desired, he could wipe mankind off the face of the earth at any moment. He could return each and every one of us back to the dust if he wanted to. But this doesn't happen. Why? Because it's not God's character. He said in his first speech, God doesn't act maliciously or without purpose. Right? God acts with purpose. That's his character. And he acts to save. So Elihu's saying, listen, God has to be just. He's the one in control. There's no one over him. And based on his prior actions, we know that he's a just God. So quit claiming that you haven't gotten justice. Because you claiming you haven't gotten justice is in effect saying God's not just. And that's not the case. The second point he makes in verses 16 through 20 is how could he reign if he was unjust? He says, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I have to say. Could one who hates justice govern the world? Will you condemn the mighty righteous one? Who asks or who says to a king, worthless man, and to nobles, wicked men? God is not partial to princes and doesn't favor the rich over the poor. For they are all the work of his hands. They die suddenly in the middle of the night. People shudder, then they pass away. Even the mighty are removed without effort. Elihu is attempting to reason with Job by comparing God to earthly kings. And his key argument appears to be, listen, is it possible, Job, that you really believe that someone who hates justice could reign and govern over all? On top of that, who would condemn or would you condemn the most righteous and mighty of all God? You say, what person in their right mind would call a king worthless or wicked? It's almost like he's saying, Job, would you walk up to the king and call him wicked to his face? Would you do that? Even if they act like they should and they don't show any partiality, because that's what a just king does. They don't regard the rich more than the poor, but you're going to walk up to him and condemn them? The point, I think, is, no, Job, you wouldn't do that. So why are you doing that with God? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It would be impossible for God to reign in the matter that he does if he wasn't just. It would be impossible. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to tell how God does act justly. In verses 21 through 30, For his eyes watch over a man's ways, and he observes all his steps. There's no darkness, no deep darkness, where evildoers can hide. God does not need to examine a person further that one should approach him in court. He shatters the mighty one without an investigation and sets others in their place. Therefore, he recognizes their deeds and overthrows them by night, and they are crushed. In full view of the public, he strikes them from their wickedness because they turned aside from following him and did not understand any of his ways, but caused the poor to cry out to him, and he heard the outcry of the needy. But when God is silent, who can declare him guilty? When he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he watches over both individuals and nations so that godless men should not rule or ensnare the people. The whole point there is God sees and knows all things. His eyes are on his creation. 
and he knows the ways of each man and each of his steps. There's no guesswork or lack of knowledge on the part of God. The evil can't hide their ways, and God doesn't have to do deep investigative work. He doesn't have to do deep deliberation. Well, what am I going to do right here? That's not how God operates, because he knows all things. He simply acts accordingly and justly. He has the ability to dispose of the wicked in darkness and in the open, and that's exactly what he does. He's going to deal with the wicked. He can do that with a single man, or he can do that with an entire nation. There's no limit to his justice. That's what Elihu's saying. If we know that this is how God acts, then who has the right to question him or condemn him? And that's, that's Elihu's major beef with Job. That's the main problem that he's got with Job. How can you walk around stating or questioning the justice of God when you know his character, when you know how he acts? Because that's not the way that unjust people act. So how can you accuse God of that? Then it seems like he wraps up this chapter and he's going to tell Job, listen, this is how you should respond. This is how you should act. He says, suppose someone says to God, I've endured my punishment. I will no longer act wickedly. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I won't do it again. Should God repay you on his terms when you've rejected his? You must choose, not I. So declare what you know. Reasonable men will say to me, along with the wise men who hear me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. If only Job were tested to the limit because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He scornfully claps in our presence while multiplying his words against God. It's, it's almost like in the beginning of that passage, Elihu is like, Job, listen, you've screwed this up, but you can fix it. Here's how you can fix it. The appropriate response is to acknowledge your mistakes, your sins, and to repent. And he calls upon Job to act humbly and to be teachable. Right? That's what he says. Suppose that someone would say. Isn't that very casual of him to say that? Suppose, Job, if someone said this. He's saying, listen, suppose if you did this, Job, this is what you should do. I've endured my punishment. I get it, God. You smacked me around long enough. I'm not going to act wickedly anymore. Teach me what I don't know. And if I've done something wrong, I'm not going to do it again. That's what he's telling Job he should do. But in some ways, Job's already done that. I mean, we've heard those things from Job. But in Elihu's mind, that hasn't happened. Job hasn't acted like he should. He goes on to ask Job, do you really believe, Job, that God should act according to what you think or what you desire? Is, is God bound to your preferences, Job? Should he just act like you want him to? That's, that's what, Job, what Elihu's saying after he tells him, this is what you should do, but you're acting like he should just act on your whim he just do what you want him to do again he ends his second speech by telling job listen you're the one that has to decide you have to decide if the words i'm saying are correct or not god either acts justly or he doesn't there's no gray area elihu wants an answer from job but we don't get one and so he keeps talking <laughs> He finishes by declaring that all those around me, listen, Job, I want to know what you know. Okay, you're not going to say anything? Well, then everybody around me should agree with my position that you're speaking without knowledge. God's completely just. And again, in that chapter there, go home and, and reread that on your own. There, I think there's a lot of questionable things that Elihu has said, but the one thing that I think he gets right is the fact that God is completely just. And for us to question his justice in the way that he acts or by assessing our own situation, that's completely wrong of us. 
Who are we to say that God is unjust? That's, I think that's the one thing we should take away from that chapter. Then we get to chapter 35, and we get to his third speech, where he says, Then Elihu continued saying, Do you think it is just when you say, I'm righteous before God? For you ask, what does it profit you? And what benefit comes to me if I don't sin? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a person like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. People cry out because of severe oppression. They shout for help because of the power of the mighty. But no one asks, where is God, my maker, who provides us with songs in the night? Who gives us more understanding than the animals of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the sky? There they cry out, but he doesn't answer because of the pride of evil people. Indeed, God does not listen to empty cries and the almighty doesn't take note of it. How much less when you complain that you do not see him, that your case is before him and you're awaiting for him. But now, because God's anger doesn't punish and he does not pay attention to transgression, Job opens his mouth in vain and multiplies words without knowledge. So this third speech from Elihu is rather short. It's one main point. Job should stop looking for his own gain and start looking for God. And in in the first eight verses... Elihu talks about, Job, you're looking for your own gain here. Do you think that the way that you've been acting has been just? You're too concerned about your own rights. You're too focused on yourself, what you should get and what you should gain. And it's understandable for us that Job's frustrated and he does not want to experience what he's experiencing. What man would? Who would want all that loss of their property and their family? Nobody wants to deal with that. But Elihu, in a sense, he's calling Job to look beyond himself. He asked Job, he said, look at the heavens. And the point that he's trying to make is that God is higher than you, Job. His ways are higher than your ways. He says, if a man sins, what effect does that have on the ways of God or God himself? If a man's righteous, what does God gain from it? Now, I think in some sense, this argument, it's good and bad from Elihu. It can be a dangerous proposition or an argument because that line of thinking could cause a man to question the purpose of his actions and it could lead to a defeatist attitude. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter what I do. What's the point? But that's not what God desires from a man, right? Because Scripture clearly tells us God desires that we avoid sin, that sin separates us from God and it grieves God. We, Genesis 6, 6, Psalm 78, 40. That's just two examples. That sin grieves God. On the other hand, it brings God joy when we're righteous. And when we aid in growing his kingdom, it brings him joy as well. But, at the same time, Elihu's kind of got a point. The purpose of God is going to be completed with or without any individual action that I do. I'm not, in other words, I'm not going to get in his way. He's not thinking, well, I can't do that because Dave screwed that up. That's not what he's thinking. Mankind can't add anything or take anything away from God. The point is, I think, with Elihu, 
Job, get, get beyond yourself. Move beyond yourself. And it may be too harsh of a reprimand, but at the same time, it's a point that I think serves us well to understand. We should desire to be in fellowship with God, but not for our own gain. Scripture tells us specifically, don't think too highly of yourself, as that only leads you on a path to more sin. Become prideful. We're not the center of the universe, and I believe that's what Elihu, in a way, is trying to tell Job. Listen, you're not at the center, man. God's going to act, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be in a manner that we desire. He's not always going to act in the way that we want him to act. But we can always trust that God's going to be just and act in a righteous manner. So Elihu goes on and he's telling Job, look for God. Quit looking out for yourself and look for God. He makes the argument that people in difficult situations often cry out for help. But rarely do they cry out for help from God. And he's telling Job, that's the wrong approach. Because God's the one that's in control, and yet everyone wants an answer from someone else or somewhere else. And it's the pride in man that causes that. How many times, just a simple example, you may think, well, I'm not looking for help from anywhere else. Well, yeah, but how many times are you looking for help from you? How many times am I trying to solve the problem on my own? It's pride in man that causes that. They can't bring themselves to ask God for the help that they need. And Elihu says, listen, God doesn't hear an empty cry. You can cry out for help all you want, and God's not going to hear it until you cry out for help from him. Now, I think this is a valid argument. It's a valid point, but does it apply to Job? Because that's what Job's been doing. He's been crying out to God. He's been longing for an answer and help from God, and yet he doesn't feel like he's received it. So, I don't know if that last point, if he's speaking to Job, if he's just bringing that up, but it appears that he speaks to that next in verse 14, which is a very difficult verse to understand what's going on. And it's especially difficult depending on the translation that you read. But I think the main point is Job. You've got to be patient. It may seem like your cries to God are not heard. But to your benefit, Job, you have been crying out to God. And Elihu's going to tell him, he says, how much less when you complain, which I don't think that's a great English translation, but how much less when you complain that you don't see him, that your case is before him. Your case is before God. And you're waiting for him. Elihu tells him, listen, your case is before God. He's already told us that God's just. And the implication is that God in time, what he's trying to tell Job, God in time will act in a just manner according to you, Job. Job, you just have to simply wait on him. Again, you think you're the center of the universe. You want him to act yesterday, and you want him to act in a certain way yesterday. That's not how God works. You can look at his past actions, you can look at all the things that he's done, and you can know that he's a just God. And he may not act like you want him to act, but he's going to act. And if you're so righteous and upright, he's going to hear your case, and he's going to act accordingly. He's going to act in a just way. You just have to be patient and wait on that, Job. So, there's your two difficult chapters for the week. But... Four kind of things that stood out to me on what, what do we, how do we take from that? How do we apply that to what we're doing? Again, the first thing is 
just as you read difficult passages in Scripture, strive for clarity, man. When you're communicating with other people, strive for clarity. Don't muddy the waters if you don't have to. The second thing was, I think Elihu's got a point, God's justice is not to be questioned. Because again, what was his major beef with Job? Whether it was intentional or not, if I question the way that I've been treated, and whether it's correct or not, the implication is, I'm right and you're wrong, God. That's a prideful position to put yourself in. Who am I to judge how God's chosen to act in a situation, whether I like it or not? God is to be at the center of our life. I'm not supposed to be at the center of my life. He's the one that's to lead God and direct everything I do, not me yanking him around on a chain. It's not how it works. And the last thing is just this idea, I think, that Elihu's trying to get across, that we're to trust God's timing. And very rarely, at least in my own experience, is God's timing the timing that I want or desire. Doesn't make sense. But if I know who God is, if I know his character, if I know, if I, if I pause long enough, that's the problem we get ourselves into, is I'm in such a stinking hurry, and I think I got it all figured out. But if I'll stop and pause and look back, and even on my own life, and I see all the ways that God has acted, and all the things that he's done on my behalf, it tells me a little bit about who he is, and I can trust that that's who he's going to be in the future, whether or not I'm comfortable where I am right now. I have to trust that he's always just, he's not to be questioned, and that he's got it under control, and that he's acting, that's what Scripture tells us, that he's acting for my benefit, whether I see it or not. And so, as believers, we're called to trust God's timing, even if we don't enjoy where we find ourselves in the moment, because he's got it all mapped out and figured out. There is no deliberation, there's no questioning, well, what am I going to do now? God's not reading the book and go, if you want to do this, turn to page 40, and if you're going to do this, turn to page 36. Like, that's not what he's doing. He's got it all figured out. We're the ones that don't have it figured out. We're called to trust. To trust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, just this continued study of Job. I pray that uh, you would just continue to speak to us, to speak to me as we try to decipher what's going on here as we get to the close of this book, Lord. And we're so anticipating you speaking because we're sick and tired of listening to these other guys speak. We know that you're just, that you're pure, that you're righteous. And that when you speak, we should listen. So as we, as we move forward in this book, Lord, I, I pray that you just give us a continued ability to be steadfast and to study your word and trust in your timing and the fact that you're going to speak to us. May we be a light in this community as we leave today. May be, we be one that can counsel uh, others through difficult times and can remain faithful when we encounter difficult times on our own. Amen.